So it's been a few weeks since we've been here. Basically, Jacob has been living in Egypt for the last 17 years. The time comes for his death. And he blesses all of his sons. As verse 28 says, with a blessing suitable to them. With the blessing suitable to him. Which indicates that he was speaking prophetically. That it wasn't just well wishes, but that there was a sense in which, even as he spoke about the destiny of each of the, what would become the 12 tribes of Israel, that he was speaking accurately. So it seems that the Holy Spirit was upon him in that blessing. And he spoke of the Lion of Judah who would arise. And this is all in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac before him. And here is Jacob with Yahweh also as his God, speaking by the Spirit of Yahweh, blessings and care for his children, the children of Israel, for generations to come, including eventually that seed of Abraham from the line of Judah, in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is where our passage picks up this evening, Genesis 49 and verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. For the Christian, isn't that a wonderful way to talk about death? To be gathered to our people. This is not going to be with the other unbelievers in hell. In a sense, everybody is gathered to their people. But for the believer in Yahweh's promises to be gathered to our people is another aspect of our hope. That not only will we be with God, but we will be with all of our fathers in the faith and mothers in the faith and brothers in the faith and sisters in the faith who have gone before us, through whom we've even journeyed alongside in the course of our lives. Some of them have got a head start on us by a few years, and we're going to go and be with them. This is a euphemism for death. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, and so on and so forth. This is his instruction. From verse 31, we learn that this is a family tomb. Abraham and Sarah are buried there. Isaac and Rebekah are buried there. And Leah, though not Rachel, is buried there. We'll talk more about that in a little while. But this is the family tomb, and Jacob's last instruction is bury me there with my people. Those who have also had a share in God's promises. I'm going to be with Abraham. I'm going to be with Isaac. I'm going to be with my people. Bury me there with them. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last. This might be another euphemism or idiom for death. He drew up his feet. If it is, it's been lost to history. It might simply be that he was sitting on the edge of the bed speaking, and now all is done, and he lifts his feet up into his bed and lays down, and he's gone. 
In any case, we understand the sense of verse 33. Drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I listened to a sermon on this passage this week. It was very powerful. If you have a chance to listen to it, it's by a pastor in Nevada named Brian Borgman. You can find it on Sermon Audio. I think it's I think it's called, I'm going by my memory here, I don't have it written down. I think it's called Jacob, comma, dying in faith, or something like that. But if you search by scripture, it's going to come up. The pastor's name is Brian Borgman. He pointed out that the time at which Jacob was gathered to his people was the time when he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last. Not the point at which he was laid in the family tomb. You know what that means? It means there's life after death. And he knew it. The authors, or the author of Genesis knew it. Sometimes you hear people saying that the early Jews didn't understand the concept of the afterlife. And that this is only present in later revelation. But look, here we are in the first book of the Bible. And at that very moment, when Jacob is absent from the body, he's present not only with the Lord, but with his people. And Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This is simply natural affection of a uh, son for his beloved father. What a reunion it must have been when after all these years, Jacob finds out that his boy is alive and goes to see him in Egypt. And those last 17 years must have been sweet. Joseph sees his dad again and gets to spend those last years with him. Jacob draws up his feet into the bed and breathes his last and Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. The Egyptians used to embalm the dead to prepare them for the afterlife, and they bury them with the things that they thought were needful for them. Because their concept was, you're kind of going into another dimension, and you're going to need your body there. You might need some other supplies there too, so we'll bury you with all that you're going to need. And, of course, if you have flesh and hair and fingernails, it will be more advantageous to you than simply to be a skeleton in that other dimension. And so we will seek to preserve as much of your corpse as we can. This was the thinking of the Egyptians with respect to embalming. Joseph's order for the physicians to embalm Jacob, his father, seems not to be a capitulation to the Egyptian religion, but rather a recognition that he's going to need to be embalmed if they're going to make the trip all the way from Egypt to Canaan. So this is a practical necessity. When the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, spoke to the household of Pharaoh, not Pharaoh himself, and makes this request, can, can I go? This is probably, remember, 
Joseph is the Pharaoh's right-hand man. This is probably not an issue if he didn't have access. This is probably not an issue if he didn't have favor. He's probably simply using a middleman because of whatever the rules and restrictions were around grieving and sorrow and proximity to the dead with respect to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Similar to the ritual cleanness and uncleanness laws that would become a part of Israel's experience as a nation many years later. He said, I am, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in the tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Again, critics of the Bible will be like, oh, there's a mistake. That tomb wasn't hewed out by Jacob. Remember, Abraham bought it. Well, this passage even acknowledges that Abraham bought it. So, obviously, the author knows that full well. It seems to be, a, again, an idiom. Like if you say, if you say, my plot at Coral Ridge, it's a place prepared for me. I've prepared it for myself. Well, did you really go dig the hole? Did you really plant the floral arrangements in that area where you might be buried? No, of course, Coral Ridge staff have done it. But you say, I've prepared it for myself because you've made arrangements. So there's really nothing to be concerned about here. This is a very minor thing. But listen, this is what the desperate critics of Christianity do. They add up all the contradictions in the Bible, including petty little things like this that can be resolved very easily. Anyway, moving on. Pharaoh gives the permission, and so they all go. With Joseph went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. They leave their children, the flocks, their herds. Perhaps mothers or nannies stayed behind to take care of the little ones. This seems to be just a matter of expedience. But here they go. It's basically a state funeral. All the who's who in the land of Egypt come along with the vizier of Egypt to bury his father. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, verse 10, which is beyond the Jordan, beyond the Jordan from the perspective of Egypt. In other words, now they're in the land of Canaan. Once they cross the river and get into the land of Canaan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. You look in verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and so on and so forth. And then verse 14, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers. You see the sons all acting in unison in this passage. There's no bickering, there's no infighting. They understand that dad wants to be buried in Canaan. They get it. So it seems that they planned, you know, once we get there, Let's pause and let's lament there. Once we get home, I can't even remember now where I was flying to, but wherever it was, it wasn't my home country. I can't quite remember, to be honest with you. But someone got off the plane and it, it was just as if they were overcome with emotion to be back on their home soil. And it, it was obvious by their 
their gestures, their mannerisms. I think they even stopped, like, bent down and touched the ground or something. And they were, I don't know what was going on in their personal life that made them so happy to see home. But it's something like this. They get into Canaan, the land of promise that God had said would be the possession of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their seed forever. Once they get across the river, here's where they have their lamentation. And all these boys who had had so much tension and so much conflict have now been reconciled to one another. And here they are acting in unison to fulfill their father's dying wish. These are basically the facts of the passage, just understanding just what happened. What is the significance? I think the central idea in this passage is that Jacob died with faith in God's promises at the forefront of his mind. Canaan. When he's dying, what's he thinking about? Canaan. He's not thinking about, as Hebrews 11 puts it, the wealth of Egypt. He's not thinking about making financial provision for his sons and and grandsons and so on and so forth, the way that some people frantically scramble to put together a will at the end of their lives. These, These things, I mean, he gives a blessing to his sons. He's thinking about that kind of stuff, but foremost in his mind, his last words, bear me in Canaan. This was dear to his heart. I want to be there. You may remember that when Jacob came to Egypt, he referred to his life as a journey. When he stood before Pharaoh, he said, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. He knows now that his journey is over. He wants to end up on Canaan's side. He's got the promises of God in his mind. His journey's over and he wants it to end in the promised land. He knows by faith that though all they own right now is the burial plot, one day Abraham's seed shall possess the land. That's where his people are ultimately going to be. He knows he's going to be gathered to them. He believes in a resurrection. Job is most likely a contemporary of Abraham. And you remember what he says, in my flesh, I shall see God. Perish the thought that these early writers didn't know about a resurrection. That they didn't know about the afterlife. Even by biblical theology, they could deduce it rightly. For God formed not only the soul, but the body. What salvation would it be to duct tape and cable tie back together in a workable way that which had been broken by the fall? 
if God would just kind of make the world a little bit workable again, what kind of salvation is that? There was promise that the serpent's head would be crushed. So even these early saints could deduce. He who made the body and the soul who says that he's going to defeat our enemies, make things right. They could deduce that he's going to make things right for the body as well as for the soul. And so Jacob wants to end up, Israel wants to end up in Canaan. The big idea, which is really the application of this text, is quite simple tonight. We should likewise prepare to die with God's promises at the forefront of our minds. Someone said that all of pastoral ministry is preparing people to die. I'm not sure that's exactly right. A large part of biblical Christianity is learning how to live. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So, teaching people how to live, how to walk with God here and now, how to commune with Him in the time being is a large part of pastoral ministry. But this life is not all there is. And certainly, even if it's an overstatement, a large part of pastoral ministry is helping prepare people to die. Not only helping people make sure that their eternity is secure, but helping them prepare mentally, psychologically, emotionally for the end. Not to sound morbid and not to sound creepy, but in some sense, I hope that I can be there at many of your deathbeds. I hope that as you cross over Jordan, I hope that I can be there. I hope that I can Weep with your loved ones when we see you cross over. And I hope that you're able to cross over with a settled confidence, with a peace and with an assurance that you're well prepared to meet God. The one we've been talking about all these years. I don't want to see you struggling on your deathbed like you're not sure what's going to happen. I want you to know the God you're about to meet. I want you to be sure what's going to happen on the other side. I want to try to help you to live like Christians but I also want to help you to die like Christians and if that's going to happen we need to think before we get there about death we need to prepare to die with God's promises at the forefront of our minds not necessarily Canaan 
It's not in the church budget to fly you to Israel to be buried there. But what Canaan typified, what it pointed towards. Canaan is not our greatest hope. The whole earth is to be made new, including Canaan, including what we might call Israel. And that will be our inheritance together. God descends to be with us, to be among us. But Canaan typified and pointed towards a place where we would be safe, where we would be secure, where we would be stable, and where we would be permanently. I was told a bedtime story to my boys in which some forest animals had to move out of their tree to a temporary tree while something was happening to their permanent tree. And then after that was finished, then they moved into the permanent tree. They obviously got the concept because one of them said, so where we live in Market Hill is temporary, but when we move to Durance, we'll be there permanently. And I say, yeah, boys. But listen, even Durance is temporary. We could live and die our whole lives here, but this existence is temporary. As all of the places where the Israelites camped on their way were temporary places, but finally they got somewhere forever as it were. God calls it a land flowing with milk and honey. But that just pointed towards a place of abundance. It's not that we have to look forward to an afterlife with lots of cows and honeybees. It's better than that. The point of that imagery is that there's going to be abundance there. That God is not going to be sparing in his care for his people. When we get there, we're going to be safe. We're going to have a place of our own. We're going to be secure from the nations around us as God promised they would be if they would keep his covenant. Everything we need is going to be there. And God is going to dwell among us in a special way as he did in the tabernacle and then the temple. God is going to be with us in a special way and we're going to live under his rule. No longer are we going to have a parliament. It's going to be a monarchy with a king who ever lives. And his commands are not burdensome. And there we're going to be in a state of blessedness forever. This is the hope of Christians. Hebrews 11 speaks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Listen, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, Jerusalem and even the whole land of Israel wasn't ultimately what Abraham went out to receive. Nor was that what had been ultimately promised to Isaac and to Jacob after him. These things, like so many things in the Old Testament, were types and shadows of greater and better things. A heavenly city. A heavenly country which God has prepared for his people. Which is going to be like Canaan. In so many ways. And yet better. 2 Peter 3.13, which we read earlier in the service. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. We're going to be permanently there. We're going to be whole. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God has promised us a place to live with him and with his people. Governed by his good laws and freed from the sins and the struggles that have plagued us all our journey through. When the days of the years of our sojournings are over. We, like Jacob, need to have the promises of God in mind. 
understand that there is a Canaan for us too. And all of this, of course, is through Christ Jesus. Because we don't deserve to be there. There's no good reason other than grace why God would dwell with man and why God would wipe away all of our tears and raise us from the dead, never more to die. And give us a place to live with him and be with him where there will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Because we're as deserving as the worst out there of eternity apart from God. Suffering the punishment that's only fitting for sin. But Christ Jesus came and lived in our place. And he died in our place. And he told us that whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And so they bury you in the family tomb. They embalm you, they cremate you, whatever. Where your soul is gathered to your people. And your body goes down into the ground like a kernel of wheat. 1 Corinthians 15. And one day what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. And all of this that we have read from the scriptures is what you will wake up to. It's all, as Ephesians 2 tells us, by grace. Undeserved. Nothing that we have done. It's all by grace. And it's through faith in Christ Jesus. Thomas Halliburton lived a long time ago. Archibald Alexander tells us of his declining health and brings us nigh to Halliburton's death in his retelling of these events in his book, Thoughts on Religious Experience. As Halliburton's health was declining, he said, Oh, choose him. Cleave to him. Serve him. Study to know him more and more. Live in communion with him. Never rest until you reach eternal communion with him. Thus said the dying Thomas Halliburton. And Archibald Alexander tells us that when Halliburton's speech had utterly failed, when one said, I hope you are encouraging yourself in the Lord, he lifted up his hands and clapped them. Brothers and sisters, live like that. And die like that.
with the promises of God at the forefront of your minds.